Heyo brothers, this is Didact. This is another episode of the Domain Query series. Today is Smart Question Day. So I got a number of really interesting questions from uh, two of my readers. We'll start with uh, a set of questions by longtime reader and friend of the site, Randall E6. And he's emailed back and forth on a number of issues with me before, and we had a discussion via email, a very cordial discussion, and um, he was just asking some questions about um, essentially starting with whether or not I'd be interested in setting up a successor to the old Return of Kings platform. Um, maybe by buying the domain from Roosh himself and kind of running it as my own project. And my answer to that was, uh, number one, I'm, I don't, I'm not interested in that per se, because it's quite hard to build a community of like-minded writers when, honestly, the, the type of site that ROK was aimed primarily at get ripped, get laid, get get uh, money, whatever, get paid, uh, as it were. Um, get paid, get ripped, get paid, get laid. Yeah, that's it. That's basically that's basically the, the ethos of Return of Kings. And obviously, being a Christian, my interests lie in a very different direction. Uh, I still think it's good for a Christian man to get ripped. I, I just think that you need to do it in a way that is about staying strong physically, not about pleasing yourself. So... And as for the get paid stuff, well, yeah, I mean, that's useful, but love of money is the root of all evil, as, as the good book says. And of course, get laid, well, you do that with your wife. End of. Um, then beyond that, the, the conversation branched out into why has Roosh kind of turned into such a humorless harridan, as it were? I mean, I, it's rather paraphrasing here. I don't, I, for the record, personally don't think that. Um, I think Roosh has just become perhaps a tad over-serious. I, I, will, I will agree with that, but I don't think he's necessarily lost his entire sense of humor. It's just he has lost a lot of what made him funny and interesting to read in a different context. So, um, based on that, um, Randall E6 asked a number of questions about religion, and he said... You know, I, this fundamentalist attitude is something that I can't really accept. It's not something I, I particularly like. And I reminded him, look, I understand your point of view. I get where you're coming from. Just understand as well that from most people's perspectives, I would be considered a fundamentalist Christian um, because of my strong belief in what the book actually says in trying to live by what Jesus actually said to do. I don't do a very good job, obviously, but I believe in the words of the book, and I try to live according to those words. Uh, so then I, I said to him, I, I gave him an offer, and I said, hey, it seems like you have a lot of questions about faith and religion and about Christianity. I'd be happy to answer them if I can, and if I don't have the answers, then there are plenty of people that I know who do have the answers. And this is my open invitation to anybody who listens to me, anyone who interacts with me, if you have questions about Christ, about Christianity, I'm more than happy to answer them. I, I don't believe in acting like Muslims do, where you know you just shout down people and say, if you don't believe what we believe, then we'll kill you. That's not how Christians behave. I believe that 
Faith in Christ comes through knowledge of and about Christ. That's certainly how it happened for me. That's how it's happened for a lot of other people that I have interacted with. And ultimately, it makes you a better person because you come to know this wonderful revelation of the Spirit and of truth, and it builds you up into someone better. So, Randall Isaac sent over a series of questions, seven of them, and these are very good questions, and I want to answer, I think they deserve serious answers, and I want to answer them in turn. Number one, how does one reconcile man's free will with God's omniscience? Number two, what is your thinking on the Masons slash Deists and their various offshoots, most prominent being the Mormons? Number three, is heaven any better than hell? To be honest with you, parenthetically, adoring God for all eternity kind of sounds like a mental hell to me, dot, dot, dot. Number four, why is the Bible so scant on descriptions of heaven? Parenthetically, Islam, by contrast, tells you explicitly what you're getting. Sounds like one of the best afterlives I've ever heard of, at least if we go by the 72 Huri uh, version. And number five, uh, what is the fate of those souls Christian missionaries never reached, e.g. the Native Americans pre-Columbus, the Chinese pre-Marco Polo would be another example. Number six, why does Christianity cuck so readily, particularly when, in parentheses, particularly when compared to its, its heretical uh, child known as Islam, which for all its faults seems to understand that some behaviors should just not be tolerated. Number seven, must a Christian truly forgive all sins against him, or can he put to the sword those who have gravely wronged him, his family, and his people? Parenthetically, e.g., were the actions of someone like, say, Vlad the Impaler uh, justified given the threats and trespasses of the Ottomans against him and his kingdom? Very interesting set of questions. Well worth tackling. And um, what can I add to, uh, I will try to add my thoughts to this, by the way, if you're hearing a lot of pinging, it's from my, it's from a, my personal Telegram account. Um, I've got, believe it or not, I've got a Ukrainian woman pinging me. It's a long story, I don't want to get into it, but that's what's happening. Anyway, um, basically, uh, let's start one by one. Number one, how does one reconcile man's free will with God's omniscience? Very, very good question. It's one that's puzzled a lot of non-Christians basically since forever. Firstly, let us be extremely clear about what God does and does not claim in the Bible. God does not make the claim that he sees all things. That's not the case. God explicitly states in the Bible that he knows everything in the human heart. That is God's absolute claim. God does not claim uh, that, he un that he knows all things, that God is absolutely omniscient. What does that mean in practice? Well, it's very hard to find an analogy. The best analogy that I've seen on the subject is... It comes from actually Vox Day's book, The Irrational Atheist, and I highly recommend this book for anybody who is an agnostic or an atheist but isn't, like, stupid about it, um, isn't, you know, isn't uh, going, to, going to go all, like, hardline about atheism. 
there are a lot of these high church atheists who are very irritating, who just are even worse than the most fundamentalist of Christians. If you're willing to keep an open mind, read that book. There is a specific uh, point in that chapter, and by the way, that book heavily influenced me to abandon atheism because the arguments in it were so compelling that I just said, look, I can't, I, I can't accept what Dawkins, Dennett, Hitchens et al. are saying. It's, it's just wrong. They're, they don't have an argument. If you look at what that book says about the issue of free will, Vox Day being a game designer, makes a game design analogy. Here's what he says. He says that in a video game, as a game designer, you create the rules, you create the actions, you create the, uh, the overall set of things that can and cannot happen. You establish the boundaries and then you program your characters to do, uh, to act according to those rules. And if you're good enough, you know, your, your, your characters can act in ways that you didn't necessarily anticipate as the creator and the designer of everything. That's exactly what happened with one of his colleagues. This guy created a game, designed it from the ground up, and one of the NPCs in the game did something he didn't expect. It was like, how the hell did this happen? And he was like, he was shocked. And then he investigated the code a little bit and he realized, oh, okay, this is, this is how it happened. The same thing is true of God. The best way that I can describe it, I mean, it, obviously it's vastly more complicated than this. The best way that I can describe it is that God, to our extremely limited human understanding, sees everything in front of him on a giant set of like computer screens almost. He can see every single thing that you're going to do, every single choice you're going to make, every single consequence that will come of those choices. But he leaves it up to you to decide what's going to happen. If you look at biblical examples throughout the Old and New Testaments, it's very clear that God leaves things up to mankind's free will. God had a pretty good idea what would happen if Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And yet he still came to them and said, what is this you have done in Genesis chapter 3? What is this you have done? God understood the consequences of sin and it scarred him forever. It, it really did. I mean, the, the pain that God felt from the fall is unimaginable to a human understanding. It really is. He understood the consequences of sin and everything that it would bring about. If you look at the way that he tested Abram, who eventually became Abraham, Abraham and Isaac, how did he test Abraham? He, he left it up to Abraham to display as a show of his devotion and his faith in God that he was willing to kill his son Isaac. And if Abraham had refused, then God left that up to him. It was, it was his choice. But because Abraham had faith enough to sacrifice his own son, potentially, God rewarded him for it and said, because of this thing you have done, this faith you have shown in me, I will make your descendants 
more numerous than the stars in heaven. When Jonah was commanded to go to Nineveh and deliver a prophecy of doom unto them, he didn't want to do it because he was afraid that the people of Nineveh would kill him. So he ran away from his fate. You know, this is a very good example of actually of this whole issue of man's free will versus God's omniscience. God knew what would happen if Jonah ran away. God knew what would happen if Jonah did his job. He left the choice to Jonah. God then gave Jonah the right to make that choice, but he also provided a very clear set of consequences for that choice, and that, that the consequences were a great storm rose up and the sailors were afraid and terrified. They tossed Jonah overboard and he was swallowed up by the great fish and, and, and so on and so forth. Everybody gets caught up in the great fish aspect of this story. It, it, that's really dumb. That's, that's not the right morality to take away. The, and I'll come back to this in this question of heaven versus hell. The point of that story is to demonstrate what hell is really like, and it's terrifying. But then Jonah is spat up onto the land after repenting and, and regretting his actions. God comes back to him and says to Jonah, go and deliver to these people a story, you know, tell them that they are doomed unless they change their ways. God, Jonah did what God told him to do. And the people of Nineveh repented, and they turned away from their sin, and God spared them. If you look at the story of uh, Abraham and um, the city of Sodom, um, I, th- I could be wrong about this. My, my knowledge of the Bible is not that good, by the way. So you got to go look up all of this stuff. Don't take my word for it. Really, seriously, don't take my word for it. Go look at the book. Uh, it's really not that hard to do. But um, if you look at um, if you look at uh, what's it called? Um, yeah, Abraham. That's right. He intercedes for Sodom. And what what does God say about Sodom? You know, this city is full of sin and corruption, and wickedness, and it's just disgusting. And I will destroy it. Abraham pleads with God and says, "Don't do this." What, you know, if there are fifty good men in Sodom, will you not spare the city? And God says, "If there are fifty good men, I will spare the city." And Jonah, I mean, Abraham. It keeps going down the list. If, uh, if there are 30 good men, if there are 10 good men, will you spare the city? God says, if there are 10 good men, I will spare the city of Sodom. And it turns out in the end, there was just one good man, Lot, and his sons, obviously. Um, God rescued them and moved them away. Uh, the thing, again, to understand is that God leaves all of these things up to the individual. He does not circumscribe your freedom of action. And here's the, here's how God himself reconciles this issue of free will versus his knowledge of everything you will do. His knowledge of everything you will potentially choose. God leaves it up to you to love him out of your own free will. He loves you so much that he will never circumscribe your actions and dictate to you that you will be a slave adoring him. He leaves it to your own choice. But if you choose to turn away from him, he will not help you. That's your choice. You've made it. 
If you choose to turn away from him, that's on you. It's your problem. If you choose to be with him, if you choose to accept him into your heart, then he will give you what you want in his own time. And it won't necessarily be what you think is best for you. It will be what what your soul and your spirit really need, but what your flesh actively rejects. I know I'm talking in very vague terms here. I understand that. But the point is that God acts in his view of what is best for you. And given that he is a perfect and complete being, he he had absolutely no need to create us or make us or do anything uh, to, to spawn creation. But he did it anyway. Given that God exists outside of our material universe, he knows what's best for us much better than we know ourselves. We can't even comprehend him. He gives us some ideas of who he is and what he is, but we cannot wrap our heads around the, the fullness and the majesty of God. It's just not possible. The best way to leave off on this subject, because it's a long and very complicated subject, to think of God's omniscience is if you've ever read Dune, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. I and mean, it's one of my absolute, it's probably the greatest sci-fi novel of all time. Paul Moadib, uh, Paul Atreides, uh, refers to his pre-sight as essentially this great storm nexus, this huge wall in his consciousness. And every possible future sits on that wall. And he is able to see every possible outcome of every possible uh, action on that wall. He's a human super, 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 super computer. He can see the results of everything that will happen. But each little computer screen on that great, gigantic, you know, endless wall, that storm nexus, uh, has room for individual choice. And each different screen represents the outcome of a different choice. As your life evolves, God allows you to pick what's going to happen. But he's there to support you along the way. If you screw up, you make a mistake, you can come back to God and say to him, hey, I'm sorry, I messed up. Can you help me? And God is a being of such mercy and such divinity and holiness that he will always come to you to help you. You're not going to like the consequences a lot of the time because you will have to pay a price for your sin. But he will always come back to help you. That's the kind of God he is. That's the kind of God we Christians believe in. Second question, what is your thinking on the Masons slash Deists and their various offshoots? Heretics, end of. Uh, the Mormons are not Christians. Okay, so let me be clear about this. I don't know much about Mormonism and I don't know much about Jehovah's Witnesses uh, or any of these other various splinter groups. Any creed that rejects the Trinity, that rejects the sonship and the holiness and the divinity of Jesus Christ, is not Christian. End of discussion. Any sect that says the Holy Spirit is you know, not part of the Trinity or that Jesus was not fully man and fully God, is not Christian. That's not my point of view. That is taken literally directly from the Apostles' Creed, which dates back to 
possibly as early as 35 AD, within a couple of years of Jesus' death. That's how old this theory is, this, this view of the divinity of Christ, the sonship of Christ. The, the, the Christology of Jesus is very clear. Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, the Gospel of John, which is the highest level of Christology you can find in the Bible, makes this unmistakably clear. Jesus is the Son of God. He is consubstantial with the Father. Um, he existed at the beginning of all things. He will be there at the end of all things. And he will be, he is the living word, the logos, the truth. That is our view of Jesus. Any sect which refutes this is not Christian. The Mormons view Jesus as like Satan's spirit brother, basically. Uh, the, you know, they're descended from the same seed and they like Satan and Jesus are basically the same, you know, on the same level. That's bullshit. Satan is an angel. Lucifer, he fell from heaven, you know, like lightning falling from the sky. Uh, but he is distinctly different from the substance of God. The, the concept of the Trinity is at one and the same time the weirdest and the most straightforward concept in all of Christianity, in my opinion. The Trinity concept says God is three persons in one essence. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three persons. They are three individual consciousnesses with individual freedoms to act, individual powers, but they communicate constantly with one another. They are co-equal with one another. It's not like the Father has greater power than the Son, or the Son has greater power than the Holy Spirit. It's not like that. They operate at the same time, and yet are capable of manifesting themselves in different ways. So there's a passage in Luke, um, and I think a passage in uh, John as well, if I'm not mistaken. I probably am. Uh, which, basically the baptism of Jesus, and... Um, that is the most clear sign and symbol of the Trinity in, in all of the Bible. It's basically Jesus is being baptized and the, the Holy Spirit de descends upon him like a dove from like, uh, you know, almost like a cloud, but sits up, rests on him like a dove. And a voice sounds from on high saying, this is my son with whom I'm, I am well pleased. The, the three aspects of the Trinity in one place at one time. This is the Holy Trinity. Any sect that denies the Trinity is not Christian. End of discussion. So that's my answer to that question. Those sects are not Christian and we do not regard them as Christian. About the Masons, I just don't know enough about the Freemasons or the Masons or whoever. Um, I know that the Catholics regard them as deeply, deeply disturbed and a total cult. Uh, You'd have to talk to a Catholic to know more, like a serious Catholic. I just don't know. Um, but they are regarded, I think, rightly with deep suspicion and uh, not, the, not, not favorably. Number three, is heaven better, any better than hell? Well, yes. Um, I, here's the thing you need to understand about hell. Everyone thinks of hell as this place of hellfire and, you know, tortured souls screaming out in agony and just everything is hotter than everything else and you're just, you, you know, you're burning and, and tormented all the time. 
Here's the thing you need to understand about hell. The gates of hell are locked from within. Everyone who goes to hell goes there because he rejects God. Everyone who goes to hell is there by his own free choice. Everyone who goes to hell lives in total isolation. And again, go back to that passage in Jonah, where Jonah is in the belly of the fish. Some people translate it as a whale. Some people translate it as a fish. I just don't care. Point is, Jonah is in the belly of something, some great sea creature. Jonah says, I sank down to Sheol, and my cries remained unheard. I was as one dead, you know, at the bottom of the ocean. I was completely alone. That, my friend, is the essence of hell. You are completely alone, isolated, trapped. You have no way of getting out. You are fully conscious. You know what's happening to you. You are in torment all the time. You burn, you thirst, you hunger. You will never, ever be satisfied. There is not even the presence or comfort of an executioner or a torturer near you to alleviate your suffering, to listen to your screams and your pleas. There is nothing there to keep you company. You are completely alone. And you are alone like this forever because of your free choice. Now do you understand why hell is so terrifying? Do you understand why hell is something that we Christians desperately want you to avoid? Why we are so desperate to save your soul? Yes, it's a place of eternal torment, but it's an impersonal kind of torment. It's torment that you've chosen for yourself. Yes, you will burn like you know, the, the analogy that Jesus uses is uh, like the pits of Gehenna. Gehenna was a place outside of Jerusalem. It was literally where they burned the rubbish. It was a place of constant fire because, you know, they'd have to burn all the refuse. Um, Gehenna, hell, exists for a reason. It exists to keep those souls there who chose to be there. If you make that choice, that's up to you. Nothing and no one will save you, ever. Uh, so is heaven better than that? Well, yes, it is. Now, this idea that you know, you're, you're constantly worshipping God, you're just, you know, amen, praise be the Lord, praise be, praise be, and so on and so forth, and forever and ever. I, look, I think that's a very simplistic understanding. The Bible in and of itself makes it very clear that God wants us to be part of his holy family. If you read the Bible end to end, cover to cover, which is actually quite hard to do. I haven't done it, by the way. If you read it, what you're going to find is God is essentially trying to bring his, his, his family back to him. Dr. Michael Heiser in the Unseen Realm is very good at explaining this. And he points out that God has a council, a family of his own that he created to keep him company. One of the most interesting questions that arises from this whole issue of what is heaven, 
really comes down to why did God create everything in the first place? Why did he create the angels? Why did he create the universe? Why did he create man? He didn't need to. God is perfect and complete in and of himself. Why would he need to create us? One potential answer, which I heard from a, an old friend of mine, um, I talk to him very frequently, actually. Uh, he's a member of my Telegram chat, and uh, he reads my site, you know, every day. Uh, he's, the, he's, he's actually the guy who brought me to Christ. He told me something that a friend of his told him. Maybe God, God created woman so that man would not be lonely. What if God created man so that God wouldn't be lonely? Think about it. Because we perform a function very different to what the angels perform. We are God's images on the earth, either literal or functional. And I take the view that it is the functional imager. We perform a function in material creation that God performs over all creation, spiritual and material. The angels are spiritual caretakers. We are earthly caretakers. But because we rebelled against him and because we are full of sin, we have to go through this winnowing process where we want to be close to him. And he's trying essentially to bring his holy family back together. In heaven, what do we do? Nobody knows. We will receive new bodies in heaven. That much is very clear from 2 Corinthians. Second uh, Corinthians or 1 Corinthians? One of the Corinthians. Go, you know, you go look it up for yourself. Um, but Paul is explicit about this. We will receive new bodies that are beyond our present understanding. And we will be with God forever and ever. And we will live to see the universe created anew exactly the way it was supposed to be. Before the fall. That is our lot in accepting God. What will heaven be like? I don't know. But I think it's fair to say we will have freedom of action and thought and movement. Um, we will be able to do things that interest us in heaven as long as they are pleasing to God. And the fact that we are there means that we want to please God of our own free will. That's, that's the point of being in heaven. Uh, question number four, why is the Bible so scant on descriptions of heaven? Uh, Islam, by contrast, right, so I disagree with that. I don't think the Bible is scant on, on, on depicting heaven. It's actually, it makes a number of very clear references to what will happen when you get to heaven. Uh, there will be no more grief, no more sadness, no more pain, no more loss, no more sorrow. There will be great joy and rejoicing and laughter. And we, by the way, we who choose God's path, who accept Jesus into our hearts, we will have, we will have greater authority than the angels. We will be over and above the angels themselves in terms of authority. That is an amazing thing to have. If you think about the powers of angelic beings as depicted in the Bible, I mean, these are creatures that can, you know, rain fire down upon cities, scour them from the earth, make animals talk, part seas, um, uh, influence men, destroy entire armies. Uh, these are beings of majestic power. We will have authority over them. 
because we are children of Christ. We are, well, we're children of God and we are rejoined to God through Jesus Christ. That is what we do. That's an amazing thing. I wouldn't say the Bible is scant on descriptions of heaven at all. I think it's very clear that heaven is a place of great rejoicing, of eternal love, of happiness, of joy. Uh, it's not a place of physical, carnal desire at all. It's a place of endless joy and laughter, of happiness, of being around people like you who love God and want to be around God and want to do things that please God. And it is a place of redemption. It is a place of knowing and understanding that everything you've been through on this earth, all the terrible things you've suffered, had a purpose, had a meaning. They made you better. That's the point of heaven. Uh, with respect to the Islamic depiction of paradise, let's be very clear about this. Islam is a religion of works. It is not a religion of faith. Islam is a blasphemous, heretical offshoot of Christianity. Originally, when it was created, it started out as basically a, a, a heresy, a Gnostic heresy. Proto-reformed Judaism slash Gnostic slash lots of other weird things slash Arab identitarian heresy of Christianity. And it started out with the idea that works lead to salvation. If you read uh, the works of like Christoph Luxemburg and others who uh, read through the Quran in Syro-Aramaic, you'll realize that the original Quran was actually a series of Christian lectionaries. And this has been known by Aramaic Christians since like literally since the 7th century AD. I mean, they've known it for that long. The, de the depictions of uh, Jannah in Islamic literature and liturg liturgy depict a very sensual, pleasing paradise because it's a religion of works. So they have to depict it like that. It's a reward for doing good works on this earth. And by the way, I mean, if you think that the Islamic description of heaven is a good thing, understand the 72 Huris thing, the 72 virgins thing, is almost certainly a mistranslation uh, of the original, which said 72 grapes, which in turn refers to some sort of, I, I've probably got this wrong, but it's some sort of uh, later Christian text, which said that um, uh, Isaac, Jacob, and Christ would greet you at the, the gates of heaven and would, and would feed you grapes as you enter the gates and so on. It's something like that, I mean. I'm, I'm murdering the history quite, quite badly here. But that's, that's more or less what would happen. Uh, the, when you get to heaven, you will have endless penis as a man. Literally, you will have an erection as long as a palm tree and it'll last for days and you'll be able to have sex as much as you want. Look, I mean, this is, this is a filthy description of heaven. It's disgusting. It's just, you know, okay, lots of sex. All right. Uh, if you want to die for that, okay, fine, go die for it. Yeah, but that's not my idea of heaven. That's just that's that's carnality. It's 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 lust. Um, it, it just means that you get rewarded for blowing yourself up or killing lots of people, and that's that's your reward. You know that you're gonna you're gonna follow some pagan moon god for for this? Like really? Anyway, uh, I could rant on that for uh, another hour. What is the fate of those souls Christian missionaries never reached? Romans chapter 1. Uh, 
Romans chapter 1 states this very, very clearly. If you go to read Romans chapter 1, what does it say? Uh, I want to get this right because it's so important. Um, for the wrath of God of, uh, for the wrath of God is revealed. This is Romans chapter 1 from verse 18 onwards. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You don't get clearer than that. What happened to the Mesoamerican tribes who engaged in human sacrifice and ate the flesh of people who worshipped idols and, and, uh, and played blood sports there in hell? What happened to the Native American tribes who did, you know, engaged in child sacrifice? The Iroquois, for instance, or the Iroquois, probably mispronounced that. The Iroquois who, who, uh, performed human sacrifice and child sacrifice there in hell. What happened to the pagan Japanese, the, you know, the, the Buddhists, uh, who meditated and prayed to idols and, and kind of tried to transcend the evil of this world by pretending it didn't exist? They're in hell. What happened to Hindus? You know, pagans, a lot of them, who worshipped idols and uh, bowed down before, you know, uh, people, images, graven images of, of people. They're in hell. What happened to the, um, the, the Canaanites that Israel was supposed to destroy from the face of the earth? Do you know why Israel was commanded to destroy the Canaanites, by the way? It's very important to understand this. God didn't just give the Israelites a command out of nowhere to go and wipe out the Moabites, the Jebusites, the, His, the, the Hivites, the Amorites, the, the what have youites, etc. He didn't give that like randomly. He, was, he wasn't just having a bad day and got pissed off and said, go, you know, go wipe out those people over there. That's, that's not how God rolls. The reason he said that is because for the previous 400 years up before the Exodus, the peoples of those regions had engaged in the most perverted and disgusting forms of sacrifice imaginable. They had engaged in child sacrifice. They had engaged in ritualized rape. They had engaged in the slaughter of the innocent. They had engaged in human sacrifice, in burning humans before idols. They had worshipped idols instead of God. They had worshipped aspects of what they thought was God instead of the immortal and living and glorious God. Here's another thing to consider. The Romans, who were pagans, were actually very highly regarded by the early church fathers. They called them virtuous pagans. They actually had a lot of respect for the early Romans. 
And you see this all the way throughout the, the epistles of Paul in the Bible. Paul treats the Romans with great respect. Roman centurions are deeply honored in the New Testament. Believe it or not, that's true. Roman centurions are treated with a level of respect and reverence in the Bible that you just don't really find um, with other, other uh, foreign nations. Why? These are pagan men, but they, are, they have a level of respect accorded to them because they are faithful to their cause. They have faith in something greater than themselves. So God judges each of us according to our faith, not according to our actions, but according to our faith. And if we have deviated from acknowledging God as the creator, whether it's through ignorance or through, uh, through refusal to see what is before us, we don't have an excuse. It doesn't matter. God has made himself clear to us through his, through his creation. And if we refuse to acknowledge that, it's our fault, it's on us, we suffer the consequences. Um, oh, going back to question uh, four, just real quick. If you want a description of heaven, go look up Revelation. And it's very hard to understand, I know. Revelation's a very, very, very difficult book to understand. If you want to understand what heaven looked like pre-lapsarian period, but before the fall, go look up Genesis chapter 2 and the first part of Genesis chapter 3, where God describes the Garden of Eden, or not God, but the Bible describes the Garden of Eden in considerable detail, actually. That's what heaven is going to be like. It's The new heaven will look like that. When we get from Genesis to Revelation, and the new Eden is revealed, and creation is as it should be, Eden will be restored, and God will make that restoration known to us. So I, I, I strongly disagree with the notion that the Bible doesn't describe heaven. It actually does. You just have to go looking for it. Number six, why does Christianity cock so readily? Excellent question. I think it's because we've grown too comfortable and too, uh, yeah, too comfortable, really, too weak. Early Christians, uh, if you look around the world, Christianity thrives the most when it's under persecution. Always. Always has, always will. Christianity has grown the most, particularly when it is under threat. Where is Christianity growing the most right now? It's growing the most in Africa, where Muslims are doing their damnedest to exterminate us and destroy us and kill us in our thousands. That's where the civilizing influence of Christianity will come in and spread across the whole continent of Africa and hopefully someday, maybe, save that benighted continent from itself. I mean, otherwise, you know, Africa's, Africa's screwed. But Christianity is helping those people precisely because it is under threat. If you look at where Christianity is weakest, it is where people have grown the most comfortable and the most relaxed because most of their big problems have been solved. The Christian ethic of understanding the universe by knowing a rational and loving God has created bounties and miracles of scientific advancement that we've never seen up until this point. It's created the world's greatest civilizations. But it's also made us weak, comfortable, and complacent. We have become lukewarm. And if you look at Gen uh, damn it, if you look at Revelation, if you look uh, in the first couple of chapters of Revelation, what does it say? God despises the lukewarm. Be either cold or hot towards me, but do not be lukewarm, for I will spit you out. 
That's essentially what, what has happened to us in the Western world. We've grown complacent. Things have been too good for us. So we've kind of let ourselves get soft and flabby and weak. Because things are comfortable for us, we want to ignore the bits of the Bible that are uncomfortable. We want to ignore all the bits that talk about divine judgment. We want to ignore the fact that Jesus was a hellfire preacher. So we instinctively go towards the bits of the Bible that we are, that we find pleasing to us. The bits that say, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth and turn the other cheek. If, If someone strikes you on, if someone strikes you, then turn the other cheek. And if he, uh, wants to take your, 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 your robe, then offer him your sandals as well. I mean, I don't, I'm obviously butchering scripture very badly, but you get the point. We see only the, the, the loving and kind and hippie collectivist Jesus that you see on, in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, what about the Jesus that ascribed seven woes to the Pharisees? What about the Jesus that cursed the fig tree and caused it to wither and die? What about the Jesus that took, uh, cords you know, fashioned a whip out of cords and flogged the, uh, the money changers out of the temple. Not once, but twice. He did it twice in the Bible. What happened to that Jesus? What happened to the Jesus that said, uh, there will be many who come to me and say, uh, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do great works in your name? And he will say, and I will say unto them, depart from me, you sinners. I never knew you. What happened to the Jesus who said, only through the Father, only through me will you know the Father. What happened to the Jesus who said, you are of your father, the devil. Before Abraham was, I am. What happened to that Jesus? That Jesus is uncomfortable, so we reject him. That's why we cuck so easily. That's why we give up so easily. That's why we accept sexual immorality, flagrant, disgusting acts of perversion so easily in our society. Because it's easy to do. It's easy to just, you know, get along to go along. That's not Christianity. That is not Christianity. That is not what we are taught. And I refuse to accept that idea of Christ. Because that's not the Christ that's in my Bible. The Christ that's in my Bible is a warrior king. He just happened to come onto this earth at that time as a humble man preaching the word, preaching the gospel. Um, but make no mistake, there was steel behind those words. What happened to the Jesus that said, I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. I come to set father, you know, brother against brother and father against son, mother against daughter. What happened to that Jesus? He's, it's the same Jesus, but we, we don't want to acknowledge him. What happened to the Jesus that said, uh, those who are, you know, sexually immoral, those who, exchange the, the, the proper consecrated union of a man and a woman for unnatural lusts between men and men and women and women and all this other mental illnesses that you see these days. What happened to that Jesus? That's the Jesus I know, but it's not the Jesus that most modern Christian denominations accept. The reason why is because it's inconvenient to us. It's hard on us to accept that Jesus. Because we are creatures of comfort and sloth and sin, we want what is easy, not what is hard. Christianity is hard as nails. And no one in his right mind should ever accept Jesus without understanding that you will pay a terrible price in your life if you do it. I'm very clear on that. Anyone who comes to Christ 
needs to do so knowing that there is a price to pay. What you get in exchange is worth the reward. There's no question. What we get in exchange is amazing. It's beyond any mortal price. But it is expensive. Number seven, must a Christian truly forgive all sins against him or can he put to the sword those who gravely wronged him? Okay, this is a tricky one. The Bible states clearly, Peter, I think, asked Jesus, um, how many times must I forgive my brother? Should I forgive him seven times? And Jesus says, I say to you, not seven times, but seven, 77 times. Uh, but there is a limit to forgiveness. That's clear. There is a limit to how much you can forgive someone who refuses to repent for what he's done to you. If you are up against someone who wants to destroy you no matter what and wants to kill you, then you are obligated to defend yourself and your family and your people. And that is clear all the way throughout the New Testament. Most people don't know that or they try to gloss over it. They try to say, you know, we, Christianity is a religion of pacifism. It's not. Re Christianity is a religion that says, try to come as much as you can to an accommodation with your attacker. Do everything possible to seek out an accommodation. But if there is no accommodation possible, then you must defend yourself. That is where the entire theory of just war comes from. That is where you get this, uh, this, this strong belief in Christian circles that under specific conditions, war is justified and uh, attacks against your enemy are justified. That is also, by the way, where you get the laws of war. Um, the laws of war are, are much older than Christianity. I mean, they, they, they date back a long, long time. They've evolved over time and have adapted to changing realities on the ground of warfare and, and conquest. That's true. But you cannot deny, looking at the laws of war, that Christianity has played a very profound role in leavening them, in uh, making them nicer is the wrong word, but more humane, perhaps. For example, the laws of war state very clearly that when you besiege a city, you must give the civilians and the citizens a chance to get out. You can restrict anyone of fighting age and above from leaving. They must leave as with only their belongings. They must not take any arms with them. They must be taken to a safe place and left alone. After that, you can legally surround a city, cut off its water supply, cut off its electricity, cut off its food. And once the defenders are reduced to eating rats, and mice, and cats, and dogs, then you can level the city. You give them a chance to surrender. If they refuse, you flatten the place. But you only get to that point after every other, other possible avenue of negotiation has failed. This is actually a very germane question for the current day, because, um, you know, look at what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Everyone thinks, well, anyone who listens to the mainstream media thinks that from a Christian perspective, what the Russians are doing is wrong. No, that's not true. The Russians have tried for eight years to negotiate with Ukraine and with the West. Eight years. They have tried everything in their power to enforce the Minsk agreements, even when other people wouldn't enforce them. 
They have tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to get the Ukrainians to back off in Donbass. They have given the Ukrainians the, the opportunity to take what they'd actually conquered at that point and just keep it and let Donetsk and Lugansk kind of administer themselves as independent nations. They have tried. And then the Ukrainians massed an army of over 100,000 men to go in and storm Lugansk and Donetsk and kill everybody there and bring NATO pretty much right up to Russian borders, right? You know, close to the cities of Belgorod and Nizhny Novgorod and uh, Tula and, you know, uh, all these other, um, up, to, up to Crimea as well, up to Sevastopol, uh, up to Simferopol, up to all of these Russian cities that are theirs by right. What were the Russians going to do? Let that happen? Really? Of course not. From a Christian perspective, what the Russians did was totally justified. What they're doing right now is completely justified. They're not attacking civilians. They're not slaughtering civilians in their hundreds and their thousands. They're attacking people who deserve it, who've made that choice freely, who've decided that they want to go to war against a country that really doesn't bear them any ill will. If you want an example of a Christian war, you need look no further than Russia today. Are they doing it perfectly? Of course not. No, absolutely not. No one is perfect. But if you want an example of how to fight a war in the appropriate Christian manner, in defense of yourself, in defense of your homelands, even when you have to venture out to do it, outside of your borders to do it, the special military operation in Ukraine is a perfect example. This is what it's like. This is what it means to go to war in a Christian context. Must a Christian truly forgive all sins against him? Well, he should, yes. Uh, he should forgive those who have trespassed against him. He should try to reconcile with those who have, you know, tried to hurt him. That's in the Lord's Prayer. That's what we pray every time we pray to God. Forgive us our debts, Father, as we forgive our debtors. That's one translation. Uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's another translation. We are required to forgive sins, yes, but that doesn't mean we cannot defend ourselves. It's You're, you're kind of con- confusing two different concepts. How do we show that forgiveness? Well, it's like how the Russians are doing right now. Any Ukrainian who repents and comes to the Russians and says, hey, I surrender, I'm sorry, I apologize. As long as he's not an Azovite or a Nazi, he will be treated humanely because the Russians don't want to kill people. They, they really don't. They want to preserve the fighting forces of Ukraine so that those same forces will be there as a police force after they leave. So any Ukrainian soldier who comes forth and regrets what he's done is automatically accepted into the Russian POW camps and is actually treated very well. That is the Christian way of fighting. If, so, if you forgive someone his sin and he continues to sin against you, yes, there's a limit. There's a limit to how much you can continue to forgive him. Just as there is a limit with how much God will continue to forgive us. If we continue constantly to spit on him and turn away and slap away his hand, yes, there is a limit to how much he will do for us. He'll just turn away from us and say, okay, you're on your own. 
He'll accept us if we come back to him of our own free will, but he will turn away from us and leave us to our own devices. The same applies for how we are to conduct ourselves in war. We go to war to defend ourselves, to defend our people, our country, our culture, our faith, our history, our traditions, our language. We fight against those who hate us. If they come back to us and repent of what they have done, we offer them friendship in all sincerity. We offer them help and we offer them aid as much as we can because they have expressed regret. Only in that circumstance do we cease hostilities and say, okay, that's it. You know, live as you want to live. I'll live as I want to live. But with the understanding that there is peace between us because you have repented of your sin against me. Any army that continues its war against um, someone else beyond that point has transgressed and will answer for its sin. God will condemn them. And you will find example after example in the Bible of armies that went too far and were roundly punished and destroyed by the Lord for their transgression against him. Because God said, God is very clear about this. You will destroy up to this point and no further. Or you will wipe them out completely. And if you don't do that, then you're punished. You know, it's, there's, there's actually quite a lot of leeway going on there. So. Um, this has been a, this has been the longest domain query I've ever done. It's basically the same length as a podcast, but I hope this was, um, helpful. I, uh, there was a lot to answer here and I wanted to give a thorough answer. Um, you will note, by the way, when it comes to heaven and hell, I do not subscribe at all to the concept of purgatory. That is a Catholic invention. I do not agree with it. A lot of Catholics will be very offended when I say that. Look, the Catholic basis for purgatory is very, very shaky. It's based on four passages, um, several of which, a couple of which are actually from First and Second Maccabees. And if you actually look at them properly, that's interpreted out of context. And it really still reduces Christianity down to a religion of works. It's not a religion of works. For heaven's sake, understand that. It's not a religion of works. It's a religion of faith. And if you continue to reduce it down to religion of works, you eliminated everything that makes Christianity great. That's uh, everything I wanted to say pretty much. Um, as always, I invite commentary on this, and I'm happy for people to uh, provide counterexamples or push back uh, in the comments, uh, in, via email, whatever, what have you. Happy to entertain that. Uh, please go look up these scriptural references for yourself. I am by no means an authority on the subject. And if my wiser and much more experienced Christian brothers have anything to add, please feel free to do so. Uh, please feel free to provide your own references on no problems with that. But I think what you'll find is the more you unpack what the Bible says, the more you will find that it points to undeniable truths. And the more you will find that it points to the truth, the truth of Christ, the truth of God. And you can't run away from that. At a certain point, you're going to get to a stage where you're like, I need to fish or cut bait. Either I walk away from this forever or I commit and I say, you know what, God, you're right. Everybody comes to that point sooner or later, I think. If he, if he takes the study of the Bible seriously, everyone comes to that point sooner or later. So I, I wish Randall E6 uh, all the best. I hope that uh, this has been helpful to him and to you. 
And I will catch up with you in the next uh, domain, well, next Didactic Mind podcast, actually, which um, should be soon. Uh, that's it for me. Strength and honor, brothers. Didact out.